great part of the child's purpose. And if they don't know who that is, so they can ask the teacher. And it just so happens that the teacher is that region. So, although you may not be getting the specific person, he is learning about his identity and his learning in his community. Um, and by the time he's graduated since he's a teen, he has his identity pretty embedded, I think. Um, so I'm making up for the fact that the school has very low academic um, achievement uh, by working with him at night, because I know he is going to drop behind because he is in a school in our school that has a big indigenous population, very low level results, and it's expected. So when I heard about Diana, as a mother and a person who wants to speak my child, I thought maybe here is something good. You know, my kid is in contact with what we're talking about here. And then I heard of the College of Northern Territory. I thought, fantastic. And then I heard that in Hopevale, they're also using DI to teach the locals to the English language. And I thought, well, maybe we could do that at the Gulf School with Adam. So I have great hope for DI, and that's why I'm here today. Because I think we need to find solutions to this issue that has been plaguing our people. And I think we need to see the attacks on DI and cementing them for what they are. You know, this sort of political thought form where I see my father go through for years. And let's look at this opportunity for what it is. You know, our kids should have the quality of education that you can get at Kimball later today. Why should we have anything else? So, without further ado, we're going to get into the program. And we Jennifer, back at home. She went there as well to school education. She was able to take a day to court for funding International assessment including PAO, National and National Religious Schools, Boys Education, Teacher Training and Employment, Child Science and Educational Disability. She's currently heading up the CIS Science and Child Literacy Project, which aims to have teachers and children every station every day. Welcome to the stage, Jennifer. Every week for a year, 
and they still didn't come to them. They still didn't learn how to get help. I mean, what they could um, find from their um, from their data. I'm not going to go into great more detail about the specific findings that came in the report because although they were groundbreaking for the time, they were also significant and have since been contested in the future. The biggest impact of the Coleman report was that it changed the way that we think about um, education and how we look at the work of schools. Eric Munster described the Coleman report as the fountain head for those committed to evidence based education policy. And he said he was a graduate student at the time and was on um, the committee that scrutinised it. And he accepted that before Coleman, a good school was defined by its input. The expenditure, the school size, um, the curriculum, the volume per student, uh, the books per student in the library, the facilities, all those kinds of things. But after Coleman, the measure of a good school shifted to output. So, how well the schools are doing in terms of managing students' learning. So, 15 years after Coleman, we're still grappling with the evidence that some teachers are more effective than others. However, these days, a difficult task isn't. Suggesting that teachers considering their effectiveness is working out why that's the case and what we can do about it. So, in recent years, the focus on teacher quality, or perhaps more accurately, teaching quality, has been almost relentless. Numerous longitudinal studies have found large differences in learning between faculty and different teachers. So, this slide shows some of those studies that have been conducted between about 2004 and 2010. The measure of effect on this slide is the standard deviation. The standard deviation is a measure of achievement um, that's relative to the mean. The median effect in this group of studies is 0.15 of the standard deviation. Another study that was done in 2010 in Australia, so that those studies um, in that data are um, from the US. An Australian study found a similar effect. So students with more effective teachers, by which I mean teachers who are at about the 75th of effectiveness, have test scores 0.15 of the standard deviation higher than students who have less effective teachers. So that's the equivalent of about a quarter of a year of learning. So you might think that a quarter of a year doesn't sound like a big deal, but the problem is that it's cumulative. So this study shows one, so this slide shows one study's finding of the impact of having an effective versus an ineffective teacher over multiple years. So in this case, from age 8 through to age 11. In this study, the effective teacher is here with the most effective teacher. Students who started at the 50th percentile um, at that age 8 moved up 55 percentile points higher, so up to the 90th. Other students who were the less effective teacher uh, for three years moved down to 37 percentile. So that can show the profound effect that having an ineffective teacher or a less effective teacher over a number of years can have on um, where a student is placed um, with respect to their, their peers. And other studies have found similar effects to that. But those um, numbers there are months, and we get similar effects for reading. So the question then is why? What is it about the teachers that's making a difference? So we'll go back in time again. So I think it's with Project Follow Through. So Project Follow Through was published just after the Coleman Report, and again, a really groundbreaking study. And it looked at the um, outcomes of 75,000 students in 180 communities over 10 years, and it cost around a billion dollars. 
The following period obviously was an enormous experiment, and it involved comparison of more than 20 different conventional organizations, and they covered a broad range of education philosophies and approaches, including things like child-directed learning, individualized instruction, learning styles, self-esteem development, parent age teaching, direct instruction, and behavioral teaching. So all of those things sound very similar and could be thought of different approaches that we see today. Each of the sponsors had to um, have rigorous requirements for their program delivery. And as you can see from um, this slide, so they're on the far right um, of the graph, they call themselves direct instruction, capital D, capital I, direct instruction. So far and away, the most effective of all of those programs. So we knew that 50 years ago. Um, and in follow-up studies, so this worked immediately and 10 years later, following up their students, had the most consistent long-term benefits in reading uh, in all academic areas, but also in the results of the team. So there was an unexpected finding that there would be the socio-emotional um, responses as well from the GI. The GI, as in capital D, capital I, has been scrutinized and studied um, at military disadvantage. A meta-analysis published in 2003 looked at 29 programs and models that had been implemented across whole schools to improve their performance. There were 49 studies of DI uh, that met the research quality criteria and were included. The average number of studies for the other programs was four. And this is just those um, whole school reform movements that have used uh, DI. It doesn't include the numerous studies of individual DI programs or subgroups of students. So before I go any further, I should explain what I mean by DI. So the term to get the direct instruction and exclusive instruction tend to get used interchangeably. So when, um, when we're talking about direct instruction and exclusive instruction in lowercase, we're talking about a general set of instructional principles. We're not talking about a specific program with lessons that are delivered uh, as they're produced in public. They're such a techniques that can be used in any classroom, um, in any discipline, and not just in classroom, where the eye principles are used in, um, in sports coaching, for example. So it's really just um, some approaches and set of characteristics of teaching. Direct instruction with capital D, capital I, is a specific program. It's a public program that teachers can deliver, um, hopefully, the way that it was intended to be delivered, and it's scripted, and it also includes curriculum. So that's, uh, that's another major difference between little DI and big DI, is that big DI includes the, the curriculum content as well. Explicit direct instruction, also spoken capital letters, is also a specific program that includes curriculum content and pedagogy. And again, it's a, a set of public programs that are uh, a specific um, set of lessons that the comparative can put into place. So I try to remember to talk about big DI or little DI as I go through the rest of the presentation, and I hope that you know what I mean by that, that big DI is just is a specific public program, little DI is um, a general set of instructional practices. So what's little DI? It has a, a set of characteristics which um, is generally credited to Barack Rosenstein, and he came up with this, which is probably the most concise list of characteristics. So that, that you can read through those, I'm not going to read them out. I'll just explain the essence is that the classroom is very teacher directed, children face the front of the room with a higher level of interaction between the teacher and the student rather than between the student and each other. It is to tell exactly what they're going to be learning and how they're going to learn it. 
they tried to work out whether or not when the group construction occurred made an impact on how well students learned the concept, whether if they were given group construction first or a high level of guidance, or the hope for the students are high and the other stands below, if a high level of guidance goes at the beginning and towards the end, um, whether or not that might make a difference um, compared to other scenarios where there was a combination of high and low guidance. And again, you see and 24 weeks later, so there is a, um, a, retain, a retention of that information. Uh, and again, um, another study looking at a similar, um, similar thing about this time, separated uh, students into groups of low achievers and high achievers. Um, the red line at the bottom there is students who were initially in the low achieving group who were not given explicit instruction, they remained low. Um, the children who were initially in the low achieving group of the blue dashed line, after um, explicit instruction, they were up near the high achievers. So their growth was uh, phenomenal. So you can see there that, um, that these groups of studies show that, that direct, direct instruction is not just about rote learning, it's not, not just about um, facts and, um, and, and foundation sort of principles, but also it can apply um, into these sort of more complex things and also with varying groups of students. And this was um, a study that a lot of people found very surprising with that direct instruction actually improved um, creativity. Um, and again, you can see from um, the numbers here that those students who had some direct instruction in how to um, creatively generate ideas versus those students who just sat and, and brainstormed, um, more like a discovery learning approach, um, had generated more original ideas. Um, and so, again, it shows that there's a wide application for these teaching techniques. So this is a, um, a very well-known study called the, the Track Manning Science Study, and that was um, in Scotland, and it's um, in synthetic science instruction. So this is, a, this is a really interesting study because um, the, the progress of that, that first group of students with the explicit instruction in phonics was so strong that instead of continuing the longitudinal control study, it was felt that it would be unfair on the other students not to offer them the same instruction. So um, the researchers decided that they would sacrifice the control study in the circumstances um, and give all children um, access to that type of teaching and then compare them with, um, with their expected reading age. The reading age or the needed reading age continued to be higher than their expected reading age two to seven years later. So not only are these applied studies that show how these sorts of techniques work in the classroom and how effective they are, they are there are now a number of um, other disciplines that are providing uh, information and evidence and also some theories about why this might be the case. So with explicit and direct instruction, there's um, a coalescing of research and evidence from various different uh, disciplines to support it. This particular theory is called cognitive load theory, and it explains uh, that our working memory is limited. So therefore, there's only so much um, information that you can hold in your working memory, and we need eventually to move information into our, our long-term memory. And so where that fits in terms of, say, uh, reading instruction, is that once you know how to decode, once it becomes automatic how to read the letters um, and, and put them into words, then you're not having to focus on that as a reader. You can focus on comprehension and, and meaning. And, and that um, is a, a really neat um, and plausible, but also um, uh, an explanation that's gradually being also supported through neuroscience. 
So what we now know about how the, the brain learns to read is supporting again um, explicit and direct instruction. So we now know that, um, that there is no reading center in the brain. So it's not just a matter of exposing children's print and that part of the brain will, will leap into life and all of a sudden they'll learn how to do it. But there um, are a complex set of um, connections that need to be made between different... And for many students, those connections can only be made through explicit teaching. Uh, and through repetition and through practice and all those sorts of things that we talk about when we talk about explicit and direct instruction. So that's what we're focusing on with the 5 from 5 project at CIS, is to take that evidence, particularly on, on reading, um, explicit teaching of reading, and try to make sure that as many people as possible have access to that and understand how it applies in the, in the classroom. There, there's an overwhelming weight of evidence in terms of explicit instruction, particularly in reading. Um, but it's not always transferring to classrooms. So we're developing um, resources for parents, and, and that um, is now available on the Five and Five website. But we're also developing resources for teachers now to try to make that as easy as possible for them. So education is a high-stakes profession. Um, educators should have the same sort of professional um, and ethical responsibilities to um, similar to that of doctors. So at least to do no harm. And in the case of education, the harm is not physical necessarily, but the harm that can come from not getting good education, not being able to read. So all of us who have an influence on children's education, either directly, like teachers and school administrators, or indirectly, like myself, have a responsibility to make sure that what we're doing is the most likely to have the best outcome. It's not enough just to think we know what works best, um, or to do what and the best way to do that is through the application of the findings of the highest quality research, specifically that we use scientific evidence protocols. And that research overwhelmingly points towards direct and explicit instruction. Um, we will have some kind of questions that we end after all of the presenters. Um, it's great to hear the sort of sound evidence base that you're bringing to this analysis because we just, you know, parents like me, we never hear that. And it's great to have the details. Um, I'd like next to introduce um, Paul, Paul McDermott from Blue Haven School. Um, Paul uh, is the principal there. And he's going to talk about his journey to direct instruction and explicit direct instruction. Right, thank you for the opportunity tonight. My journey uh, with explicit and direct instruction began in 2013. Um, I'm the principal of Blue Haven Public School. I have been for the sum total now of 10 weeks. So um, I'm sharing predominantly my story at Bunnersley Public School where I'm principal for three and a half years. Um, and we use explicit and direct instruction not only to improve student results, but I think more significantly to transform the school culture. Uh, and I think that's something that's not emphasized enough through the explicit and direct instruction approach. So, just a little bit of contextual stuff before we do um, talk about the results. Barnsley Public School is a school of about 250 students. Um, in the department, we use what we call a financial, occupational, educational index, and ours is 120, which means that we are a disadvantaged school. Uh, so we are so low socioeconomic and disadvantaged. We have about 11 classes um, and a very diverse staff. Staff that are 
Um, at towards the twilight of their careers, but also lots of young people who have just come straight out of university as well. Um, Barnsley Public School in 2013. Fantastic kids. Some of the nicest kids I've ever worked with at Barnsley. Uh, there was a culture of low expectations when I first started. Lots and lots of excuses and people saying they're just
So the model that we used, we used warm-ups across the board. So the warm-ups are previously taught content, they're fast-paced. The whole idea of the warm-ups is to produce that automaticity for the kids so that they're freeing up their working memory uh, to use that with the more higher-order thinking, problem-solving style activities that they need later on down the track. We use learning intentions and success criteria for all of our lessons. And we had an I do, we do, you do, or a model-guided, um, independent approach to all of our lessons. Uh, at the end of that, we use the cloud to revisit the learning intention and success criteria. Now, embedded throughout that lesson structure as well, we use a significant amount of formative assessment and checking for understanding, which allowed us the opportunity to give our kids feedback at the point of error. So no kids were left on incorrect thinking because we were able to give them feedback very quickly uh, as soon as their thinking was heading on track. So our initial observations through working through the model, the first thing it gave us was consistency. It gave us real academic rigour. So the kids were getting through so much content. There were really high levels of engagement. Uh, as I said, the content coverage was enormous. So the behavioural issues in the school, and there were some significant behavioural issues when I first started the school, in class reduced enormously because the kids were engaging and they were feeling that uh, sense of success in what they were doing. Their confidence went through the roof and teachers became far more aware of their students' progress and the data that they were working with as well. So during that time, and I was at Barnsley until August of this year, um, we experienced what we believed was real turnaround success. So explicit instruction and direct instruction opened doors to a culture of high expectations, and that was through staff, students, and parents. We had a school-wide approach to professional development. We had extensive instructional coaching from our leader of pedagogy. We had embedded formative assessment with that constant checking for understanding that I spoke about. We had continual differentiation throughout the lessons as we were able to tell the engagement by the engagement levels whether children were picking up concepts or not. Uh, we in introduced tiered benchmarks for all of our children. So, for example, uh, the department's benchmarks for kindergarten and reading initially were level six. So we had six as our minimum, but we wanted our benchmark kids at 12 and we wanted our high achieving kids at 16. So we made sure we had those tiered benchmarks so that teachers weren't taking their foot off the pedal and were letting those kids really achieve uh, the most success that they possibly could. Um, we used data effectively and we tracked it really closely. We had a positive school culture. The parents were highly engaged in everything that we did. We had open classes for the parents to come in and observe lessons, to work with their, um, their children and to see how the teachers were teaching. We ran parent information sessions about how the model worked and we provided parents with the resources to support their children at home as well. Interestingly, uh, when I finished my time at Barnsley in July uh, in readiness for my introduction to my new school at Bluehaven, the number one concern from parents didn't seem to be that I was going, it was, was EDI staying, so, uh, which I took as a great compliment anyway. So, um, so the initial results, we removed the tail. So the number of kids that were not reaching benchmark or performing in the bottom two bands of NAPLAN almost vanished. Um, to give you a snapshot, in 2013, Barnsley students were above the state average in zero out of ten. In 2016, they were above the state average in 9 out of 10, and significantly above the state average in a lot of those. 
and I can tell you the one that they weren't, the teachers were not very happy with themselves. So, uh, year three spelling, I believe, will be something that they'll get enormous results out of next year. Uh, by the end of 2014 and 15, 95% of our kids in kindergarten were reading at level 9 or above. 2014, it was 100%. It was a little less in 2015, and that includes kids with concerned disabilities. So that's all children, regardless of their needs. Um, in 2016, 85% of our kids were in the top three bands of math and writing. In 2016, 0% were in the bottom two bands. Four years ago, 30% of our kids were in the bottom two bands. In 2014, year five numeracy, we had 5% of kids in the top two bands with names in the top bands. In 2016, 37% of our kids were in the top two bands with 17 in the top bands. In 2016, also, we had over 50% of our kids in the top two bands of all strands or all domains of literacy. Um, and as you can see by the graph in the bottom corner there, our growth from year three to five was over 77% in that two-year period. Uh, even a number of those blue graphs, or blue lines, sorry, that are um, less than expected growth are very close to being yellow as well. So those numbers are really, really pleasing. So our trend data over time, just to give you a snapshot, uh, writing is not included because they change the text type or genre. Um, but you can see the trends pretty well speak for themselves. Year three reading, well above state average. Year three grammar and punctuation and the growth. We didn't really hit our straps, to be honest, with explicit direct instruction until mid-2014 um, because it did take time to train people and get people up to the standard that we would have hoped to have them. So um, we will look at all of the data, but really 2015 and 16 are probably the most relevant results. Um, so the numbers do speak for themselves. So 2012, our year threes were 73 points below state average in writing. Last year they were 13, or sorry, this year they were 13 above state average. And the year five results tell a very similar story. So as I said, the results are very clear with explicit and direct instruction, but the number one thing for me was that our kids started believing in themselves and really did believe that they could study hard and work hard in class and really achieve great results. We had a huge number of our kids that ended up in AAA or gifted and talented classes when they went to high school, and those numbers were significantly increased over the time since we introduced it. Thank you very much. So, uh, next, it's my great pleasure to introduce um, Glenn and Kiriano. Um, they are from the Cohen School. I recently had the opportunity to visit that school and was really impressed. Um, uh, Glenn, going to start now. So, Glenn's the principal at Cape York Academy in Cohen, and uh, Kiriana is the direct instruction implementation manager also at Cohen. Welcome to you both. Uh, thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure for Kiriana and I to be here tonight. A little bit of a context about the uh, school we're from. So Colin um, is part of the Cape York Academy. Um, we have a student population of 55 students and we're located um, about seven hours north of Cairns. Our school has an indigenous population of 98%. And as spoken by our founder Noel Pearson, our vision is that our students will achieve their full potential, talent and creativity, and club, culture and community. 
Our journey with the Academy began in 2011 when we naively applied for the PE positions that have been advertised for the new club and culture programs in Arakoon and Cohen. Um, however, unfortunately, after talking to EQ, we discovered that they were not commutable and we thought the opportunity had been lost. Um, however, then in late January, we received a call to say that Hopevale had joined the Academy and needed two teachers. Two weeks later, we were on a plane and making our way up to far north Queensland. We arrived knowing that we were entering at the grassroots, that educational change was about to occur, but until we lived it, we had no true understanding of what that would look like or how big that journey was going to be. I will always remember my first day. We were picked up from Cooktown and drove to Westall at the middle of nowhere on what was then a mainly dirt road. We arrived at school as the morning bell was ringing. I was handed a stack of DI books and my class list, and off I went. Two boys came up to me and they said, show me your list, miss. I humbly showed it to them. And they said, great, we're in your class. The rest of the boys are on the roof. Come with us. <laughs> it was at that point that I realized I had no idea what I had just gotten myself into. Beginning my first lesson with a group of 15 year six and seven boys that had the week before been placement tested at a prep reading level, it became abundantly clear that the education that I had personally received was a privilege that was not being extended to everyone. That night, Glenn and I sat together um, and reflected on the momentous journey of which we had just embarked. I had read about closing the gap, I had heard of the low literacy and numeracy levels across the country, but the reality was that as a receiver of a great mainstream private school education, I had also become naive to how widely disparate education in this country was. To say that the beginning was tough is an understatement. We did, however, have a fantastic principal in Cheryl Cannon, a great Indigenous leader, who despite the tr that trying beginning, continued to motivate us. We were building a culture of high expectations and no excuses that took commitment, but the rewards would be worth it. Through her leadership, no excuses, came to mean that we believed our students would no longer our student prospects would no longer be determined by their ethnicity, location, or socioeconomic status. The fact that some of our students come from disadvantaged or even dysfunctional backgrounds would no longer be an excuse for educational failure. To show the community that we were here to change the outcomes of our students, this no excuses code of behaviour became clearly visible within our schools. Through the use of direct instruction and explicit instruction, we recognised that a disciplined environment increases learning time and we were committed to reinforcing that children must work hard as there are no shortcuts to learning. When we started with the Academy, direct instruction had just been implemented in Hotel. Direct instruction is an education program that combines explicit instruction pedagogy with a comprehensive curriculum, student assessment and scripted lessons. Students are taught carefully sequenced and highly structured lessons and are required to master each lesson before advancing on to the next. This ensures that no child is left behind and more, more advanced students can be accelerated. The program covers literacy and numeracy and aligns to the Australian curriculum. We had read about the major features and benefits before embarking on this journey. However, the reality of being there when it was first introduced was definitely our next challenge. Not only were we in this completely foreign place and coping with the culture shock of living remote, 
we were dealing with what on the surface appeared to be a completely foreign curriculum. I hated it. I didn't know how to teach it properly and I was struggling with the ideology. I had this group of boys that were so far behind and so disengaged and I had, I did not believe that this was going to be the curriculum that after six years of learning, uh, six years of schooling, hooked them into learning. I was wrong. We were lucky to be very supportive with leadership and coaching and after a couple of weeks I was re receiving coaching from a very experienced DI mentor and expressed my concerns to her about the program. She said to me that it was okay to feel like that, but asked that I teach the program with fidelity until the end of the term and if I didn't see results then I would prove her wrong and that would be okay. I thought I can do that, I can prove you wrong. So that's what I did. It wasn't easy. These students had never been engaged in the classroom before and had daily battles, parent meetings and the lunch times. I still remember the Wednesday of the third week of term two when I walked into the staff room and everyone cheered. It was my first lunch break that I had since I started but also marked the lunch last time that I would regularly lose my lunch. I was hooked on this journey. I watched as this group of boys who couldn't so much as write their name and who knew every trick in the book on how to get out of work become engaged in reading. I was witness to the boys demanding we get through our lessons. They were voluntarily picking up reading books. They had their heads down and looking into their eyes. I couldn't believe these were the same boys that I coped down from the roof not that many weeks before. It's very easy to blame the teachers when you're at a school where the students are so far behind. However, we came into a school that had great teachers and who have continued to be amazing mentors to us as we've progressed our careers. The problem wasn't the teachers. It was the teaching and the delivery of the curriculum, combined with significant turnover of teachers. This lack of continuity in staffing and programming was what was ultimately holding our students back. It was an exciting time because what was happening in my classroom was happening across the school. Students were in class, teachers who had been teaching these students for years were finally finding success and you could feel the energy in the school. It was invigorating. We could have rested there. Things were going well. Everyone was happy. However, there, is a, there was a real sense of urgency with what we needed to do to change the educational outcomes for our students. Professor John Hattie, Director of the Melbourne Research, Education Research Institute, highlighted the Academy's success. For years three to five, they had been greater than the Australian average growth, 181% greater in reading and numeracy and 98% greater in writing. This was the good news. The program was truly making a difference, but the sobering news was that the students had to make up three plus years growth in one year to catch up. We celebrated the small wins. However, we were a poor school and it wasn't enough to say that things were going well. We wanted to get to fair and then to good and onwards. We continued to accelerate our success by introducing the eight cycles of school practice and by remaining committed to ensuring that learning time was protected. <coughs> so it was this journey that saw us move to Cohen campus who were going through a mirror image of the success we were achieving in Hopevale to continue our journey from fair to good. As you can see, Cohen started where Hopevale was, with only one student on grade level in 2011. 
However, what these graphs don't show is that in the background, the students have been rapidly catching up. By 2014, they were no longer five, six years behind their peers. They were catching up and they were only one to three years behind. As it stands right now in Cohen, with a cohort of 55 students, we currently have in reading nine students working above grade level and 30 working in their current grade level program. And in maths, we have 12 students working above grade level and 32 working in their current grade level program. Cohen has somewhat of a transient population and given our recent success, it only highlights the disparities in education when students now come to our school for a short term and are significantly behind the students that have been at Cohen since prep. So these are just some of our Nathaland trends. As the graphs go, the longitudinal trend results show steady improvement in Cohen. This year, our year three cohort of five students achieved strong results with eight results in the upper two bands and excellent improvements in mean scale scores for reading, writing, spelling, and grammar and punctuation. However, we were especially proud of our year five cohort at Cohen has more than doubled the Australian average growth in reading, writing and numeracy, improving strongly since being tested as year threes in 2014. Our schools, however, are more than just a direct instruction school. We use explicit instruction to cover the other key learning areas in, a, in an exciting application of the Australian curriculum. So our club program is a component of our school day, is where students are delivered units which consist of explicit instruction units for PE, music and science, this part of the day is where we focus on moral development, higher order thinking skills, and creative expression. We also have a strong music program that sees all our year three to six students learn an instrument and join the school band. So our culture curriculum is written using explicit directed instruction pedagogy and integrates the above listed ACARA subjects, along with the incorporation of local culture delivered by local members. The curriculum is organised into four themes, delivered over the four school terms. The intent of our culture curriculum is to meet CYA's vision to realise the right of every child to speak and be literate in their ancestral languages and to en enable every child to be so successfully bicultural so they may walk with confidence between two worlds. The curriculum draws on the standards identified in each of the included learning areas of the Australian curriculum. Of equal focus is that the learning episodes deliver content that reflects an Indigenous perspective. The great thing about our culture program is that it is giving the students the opportunity through partnerships with local clan groups and ranger groups to go to traditional homelands for culture camps and engross themselves in learning cultural ways, traditions, stories and most importantly conservation and sustainability skills to one day take over and be able to pass on that knowledge to the next generation. Our explicit, uh, our explicit direct instruction lessons are well-crafted, well-taught lessons that assist teachers to deliver effective instruction that significantly lifts student achievement. So as you can see here, we have an example of one of our EDI lessons, and it's designed at a foundation or prep level about kinship. Along the side there, you can see it clearly identifies the learning objectives, gives you their vocabulary content to help students understand those difficult words and ways for students to make connections to their everyday life. 
The Academy is proud that we are able to provide such a rich curriculum to our students and aims to close the academic achievement gap between Indigenous and mainstream students while supporting Cape York children's bicultural identity. We could talk about the quantitative results of the Academy that the Academy has achieved all night. However, for us, it is the qualitative stories of which there are hundreds that continue to drive us on this continuous improvement journey. It is watching the year five student who a year prior we were told would always have behavior problems and would never learn to read, stand up and deliver a speech that he's written on his own to the entire school community on why he should be elected a school leader. It has been part of a cultural shift that sees students in Hopevale not only learning their traditional language, but being strong and confident enough to deliver end of year performances completely written and delivered in their native tongue. It is the families that were once disengaged and avoiding the school, turning up to be classroom reading helpers or calling the principal in the morning to say, I'm having trouble getting my child to school. Can you come and speak to them? It is watching a whole generation of students who were so lacking in confidence that they were ashamed to come up to parade to receive an award. To now not only be proud and confident when they are recognised for their achievements, but are also able to articulate why and how they achieved that success. It is each of these tiny but ultimately powerful breakthroughs that have made the journey that we have embarked on so richly satisfying. We aren't there yet, but we're on our way to becoming a great school. Thank you. Uh, before we finish, guys, it's um, really exciting to have um, Dion Creek here from our Pond community. Um, I'd just like to take this opportunity to invite Dion up to the stand just to talk a little bit about um, his experiences because he has two children currently at the school um, at the moment. So please welcome Dion. Thank you. Kind, kind introductions. I'm from Colm. I, I grew up in Colm. We often talk about this gap, closing the gap. Well, the gap from Colm Primary School for me to St. Augustine's in Kansas was a gap. Direct instructions has, has helped improve that gap. I have nephews and nieces in, at Morris and Stuart Holmes in Brisbane, and the, and the transition from Colm Primary School to a high school. So I'm, I'm an activist first and foremost, and I come from a long line of activists. And our job is to ensure that we that the show moves forward. Without programs and curriculums like direct instructions, we won't be moving the show forward. You know, I'm I'm torn on what's happening in Auckland. Our children aren't being educated. And they've been deprived of an education that they truly need. You know, we're privileged in Cohen that that our children are being educated, and there's a pathway that leads from primary school Cohen to Morris Dashgrove and to Melbourne University or any university in this country. You know, I want to I want to acknowledge some of our champions. You know, we had many champions that have championed our causes for land rights and for education. We have two sitting here now, um, Glenn and Kerry, but also Bernie. I, I want to give Bernie um, some acknowledgement. You know, Bernie's been heading up the uh, the Good to Great Schools program for many years now, since it's founded. And you know, this is a woman that wakes up every morning wanting to educate our children, 
And I don't think she gets enough credit for, for the hard work she's done over the, over the last decade. So I want to acknowledge Bernie. Done. Thank you. Next up, we have Noel Pearson. Uh, Noel is our founder and co-chair of Good to Great Schools Australia, and he's here this evening to speak to us about the history of direct instruction in Cape York. And uh, thanks for coming, Noel. You've got a full plate. Welcome. Um, I'm here with old friends, the CIS. Thank you very much, Greg Lindsay and um, Jennifer, for giving us the opportunity to speak here this evening. Um, I'm reminded by James Boswell's Life of Johnson that he felt that the great man felt uh, people, he said, people feel mean about themselves for never having been a soldier. And I've always had this sense of feeling mean about myself for never having been a teacher because it is such a noble profession and I'm extremely humbled when I see educators uh, uh, like we've had tonight and on the video talk about this glorious business of what I think is society's most pressing and important calling. Um, on this night, I have to remember the late Professor Helen Hughes. I spent a year in 2012 uh, in the trenches of um, cancer treatment. I was uh, kind of out of, out of action for 12 months in this dormitory dark suburb of uh, amazing great privilege, actually Sunshine Beach. But it was all dark and the whales were whistling off the coast and the wind was pounding the beach. And uh, I was reading uh, papers from Mark and Helen Hughes about education and these were my drawings from uh, that, uh, that dark period when I was starting to think about what we were going to do to expand the cause of direct and explicit instruction. I was under the hammer from the Sydney Morning Herald, 12 months out of circulation but they were determined to uh, paint Saint Noel as um, <laughs> the devil incarnate, <laughs> notwithstanding my withdrawal from public life um, uh, by no choice of my own. Um, this is a hard business, and this is not a exactly popular cause. Um, I said last night in Brisbane that it's now uh, 60 years since Rudolf Fleisch wrote a famous book called Why Johnny Can't Read in the United States. The solution to education and particularly the teaching of reading, but not just, the read, not just reading mathematics, the, the, the teaching generally uh, was apparent to us over 60 years ago and yet we still have ongoing uh, reluctance to embrace um, uh, what Rudolf Fleisch had identified back in 1955 
and the work of Siegfried Engelmann on direct instruction since 1964, and of course our own national reading inquiry in 2005 that told us what we need to do um, to get uh, Australian children uh, enjoying perhaps the most basic entitlement, the entitlement to be able to read not just the most basic, the most powerful entitlement. I said last night also, I'm just constantly, uh, uh, as I get older and the distance between my late father and myself grows, uh, uh, I'm, I'm ever thankful to his um, childhood advice. I don't know where he got it from, maybe from the missionary, maybe from some book. But he told me from, from the earliest childhood that reading makes a full man. It was a quotation from Francis Bacon, and he constantly drilled that into me and my brothers, that reading makes a full man. And that invocation never departed from me and has always sat on my shoulders. It was the best advice he ever gave me. And is one of these really so passionate about um, ensuring that our children get, Australian children generally get, the advantage of being able to read. I want to make one point about uh, how do we improve Australian schools and the performance of Australian classrooms and make the point that there's a lot of talk about teacher quality. And, and I think what's lost in the debate about teacher quality is teaching quality. We can in fact lift Australian schools without a massive change in the now. We can lift Australian schools if we get the verb going. And in fact, the now will follow the verb. If we get the pedagogy right, if we get the teaching right, the teacher will develop. And that has been the story of our own academy. There need be no magical transformation in the quality of teachers. We need to focus on the importance of pedagogy and teaching. We will get the largest return and the quickest return once we understand that we've got to get the teaching right. And the inventor of direct instruction, Sigfrid Engelman, developed in the very early days an operating principle of direct instruction when he said if the student has not learned, the teacher has not taught. And you think about that phrase. It is the ultimate accountability. We can talk all we like about school accountability and the accountability of educators and education systems. But Engelman's starting point was that if the student has not learned, the teacher has not taught. And uh, there's a further point that I want to make about the about direct instruction is, and and, and this is often. Uh, not at all well understood in relation to, to the direct instruction program. This is a big deal of our program. 
is not a micro level, what you a pedagogical practice. It can look, it can seem as if um, there's a lot of practice, a lot of repetition, a lot of embedding and memorization and embedding in long term memory. But when you take the zoom lens out and you look at the program in the macro, there is in fact a sophisticated instructional design. And this is not a program about rote learning everything. Instructional design actually is all about exposing children to examples, getting them to learn the logical rules and make the deductions and inferences, and then extrapolating them to new Generalizing those rules. So, one of the one of the misconceptions when you observe a direct instruction classroom in progress, when you're looking at the micro or pedagogical practice, you lose the overall picture that as the lessons proceed throughout the program, a very sophisticated instructional design is at work, where children are being exposed to examples and then they're able to generalize to completely novel examples. As most basic, you learn the rule, rule blue, blue smoke, blue color, blue pen, blue cup, blue water, and all of a sudden a novel alien comes through the door. Blue alien. And of course, the program in its in its later years starts to get extremely sophisticated. All of the pieces start to come together and children are able to logically discern higher order patterns. So at first blush, it might seem like a rote learning program. There's a lot of practice and returning to the, the material that's been taught in previous lessons. But in the macro design of the instructional programs, um, this is this is a, a very sophisticated and extremely well-designed um, program that is about equipping children with the logical rules so that they can eventually discern very complex patterns and generalize from the rules that they've learned. I want to say something about higher expectations. And I'm in a, a very combative discourse uh, with my colleague, Dr. Castile, in relation to this whole question of direct instruction. I think he knows very little about it. I don't know that he's ever been in a classroom where direct instruction has ever been taught. I'm in curious agreement with his call for higher expectations in Indigenous education in particular. Furious agreement, complete alignment. There's been too many decades of low expectations. And if Sarah has done anything, it has been to underscore the critical importance of holding high expectations for disadvantaged kids and Indigenous kids in particular. Well, I part ways with Chris, 
is that it is one thing to have high expectations of a student, but it is the teacher's duty to furnish that student with the means to meet those expectations. To my mind, it is completely cruel to have high expectations of a child and then not give them the means to meet those expectations. If you don't give them the means to read successfully and to perform mathematics successfully, then you've set up a cruel expectation. You've said these Aboriginal kids, you'd be able to perform the same as the kids at Blue Haven or Broad Beach State School, but you haven't furnished them with the means to meet those expectations. And meeting those expectations is a question of pedagogy. It is not a question of self-esteem or racial pride. No amount of racial pride and exhortation to that effect will furnish a kid with the means to be able to read. In fact, pride will come when you read successfully. It is achievement and hard work that is the wellspring of pride understand. It can't just come simply on the basis of the colour of your skin and some self-consciousness about that. This is where I part ways with Fundamentally, I'm on the same page in relation to the expectations, but you've got to go further than that. You then have a moral duty to give the child the means to meet those expectations, and this is a question of pedagogy. In fact, Stephen Engelman hammered out those pedagogical principles since 1964, and Barack Rosenstein actually compiled a taxonomy. The actual principles of I do, we do, you do, model, lead, test, were hammered out by Engelman following his commencement in this area in 1964. Finally, I do want to give an opportunity to Phyllis Porter, a colleague from Pebble Peninsula, who came with me to the United States in 2009 when we were uh, guided by Professor Kevin Weldahl from the Multilip program here in Sydney. We had had very promising success with Multilip remediating students of color. We had a little tutorial room on the edge of the school. You weren't allowed in the main classroom, but at least the department allowed us to run a remedial program on the side of the school in the mid-2000s. And we were so impressed with how the kids were responding to the multi-lit program, the kind of question occurred to us, well, if the teaching in this in this tutorial room is so good, why isn't it happening down in the main classroom? We had a time of it trying to break into that classroom. It took us a couple of years, and finally Kevin told us that that, in fact, ancestral program of multi-lit was direct instruction. So we went to the United States with the support of the Vincent Fairfax Foundation, and we saw direct instruction in African-American classrooms in Atlanta. 
in a minute of the budget. And we take care of the curriculum and the pedagogy. It seems to me that this is the optimal model for us to spread school reform without going back to the old story when prior to us being involved, uh, the whole thing abjured any kind of effective instruction writing, reading, arithmetic, anything. Cowley had a very high rate of attendance. We had worked with that community through the 2000s. So the, the, the problem of underachievement at Cowley uh, wasn't a result of the children not turning up. The great injustice that was going on was the kids were turning up and they were not being taught. We had to get in there and change the teacher's supply. We had strong and developing learning demands, but completely unjust teaching supply. And the situation did not change until we changed the governance of the school. The constructivist and whole language approaches were completely entrenched in remote education, as they are largely throughout systems across the country. And uh, it, it, a, a strong objective of our academy was to say, well, it's not about ideology, it's about the evidence. Fortunately, Tommy Hattie's visible learning came out about the same time that we started the academy. And plainly the evidence was there in favour of direct instruction. And, and so uh, we, we've, we've been very pleased with the journey that we've had at Cohen and Hopevale. Um, but in the I, I want to acknowledge before I bring Phyllis up here, Phyllis, if you could come up. Um, I want to acknowledge Connie Carlos, who was the principal of Araquin last year, and because what has gone on at Araquin is a complete travesty, where the, the actions of the Queensland government have really destroyed five years of work. The actions of the Queensland government have destroyed five years of work, and. You know, the, the great tragedy, and, and they, they're not even aware of it. Not, they know not what they have done. And, and what Con did um, last year was uh, the data shows that we finally hit our straps in our class. Those children were achieving at reading and mathematic rates. They were getting through those DI programs um, at a tremendous you know, one program per year, which is what we want. We want the children to complete the program within the allotted time. Getting mastery and progress are the two wings of the plan. You want to lift to the right, but you've got to keep the wings on even keel of mastering the material and progressing through the program. And, and, Araquin's best year was in 2015 when our lesson progress was um, was over one lesson, over, uh, one year's progress in 12 months of schooling. And um, I, we're, we're in a state of 
real flux about what the future of Oroquan is going to be. We've done a term without the program. Uh, we're still um, in negotiations with the Queensland government about the future of the school there. And all of this because of incidents that took place outside of the school. That had to do with law and order and juvenile delinquency and lack of policing. And yet the Queensland government turned it into a question about pedagogy. And we went through three months of hell about direct instruction. And, uh, you know, as I say, they, they know not what they have done in relation to um, the, 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 the complete unraveling that's taken place, um, particularly in relation to the work that um, uh, uh, a succession of principles like Tom Taylor's um, was, was achieving with um, uh, the kids from that community. I want to let um, Phyllis speak in relation to her um, experience uh, at Oracle. I am Lampuatra Phyllis Yankapoti, my of Oracle Environment Man. My Kankonian Taki, Akin Kunchin, Akin Tanamampi. My Indian Kalakua and Okmani Arakun School and direct instruction and learning. Hello, my name is Phyllis Yankapota. I come from Arakun. I acknowledge traditional owners of this land. I stand on. I would like to talk about the Arakun School and of how the honor was taken from my serving. It certainly was a deprivation of my children at Oracle by the Queensland government taking direct infection away, I must say that. <coughs> we had a partnership with Cape York Academy with Education Queensland. My heart is torn at what has happened. I see my little children, they have been deprived of their education. And in today's age, we really want the Aboriginal children to have an education that can pretty much see them with qualifications and the profession in life. And for the good people like Conkalis and his wife, that have been done so much for our crew. And with the Cape Rock Academy team, with my brother Noel here, especially putting that in place. And having invited me and the late mayor to go to the state when I was the deputy mayor, we brought direct instruction into the Arakun School. And on implementing it into the Arakun School, we could see changes when we first introduced direct instruction into the classroom. Because at first, 
I barely remember the days in the school, it said to me. That same year, in year 2010, that why do we need a program when we already have the education system in place? I didn't say anything. I left it up because several months later, the same person came to me and said, Oh, you see, I can see a change in my grandchild who's in grade two. She's now reading a book fluently. All the skeptics that some people had at the first instance, they had to experience for themselves to see the change in their child. My, my community of all cool is a recognition. I follow the footsteps of my eldest daughter, you know. I stand up for the community, even though we have a special leaders in place. They express their views from local government. I want to express my views from the community itself. I want to do my best. I want people to listen to the government, like recently, when I look It simply means that they've now 
created more than ten great youth in the near future. We want these children to have an education that's proper. And it's always sad that I stand today to tell the truth. So your question is, do the kids in Cape York, uh, part of the academy, speak English as their first language, or do they speak um, other languages as their first language? Who's the most appropriate to answer that question? Noel, do you want to? Thank you. Well, there's variation across our academy. So in Arakan, the first language is Wisconsin. And uh, in Hopedale, it's English and Gugimir. And that, uh, Poem is uh, uh, English is the language across the eight traditional groups, and the survival of the traditional language varies between uh, those eight groups. So the, the story is diverse. In relation to kids that don't um, speak English as a first language, the entry level direct instruction programs actually focuses on language, developing oral language capability in the children before they go on to read. So the entry level programs are specifically designed for for children who don't have oral command of English. Um, and uh, so in the United States, for example, we see we saw direct instruction being taught to Hispanic children um, who, who had no idea about English. And 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 so Suite of programs uh, were, uh, were developed by the inventors of direct instruction specifically aimed at children that did not have English as a first language. Yeah, yeah. So their parents were obviously Hispanic immigrants and so on. We've got time for some more questions. Um, yes, lady over here, and now at the back. I think this is the time that to project and the microphone will get to you. 
You're right, a lot of the research that's usually quoted to support direct construction, big DI, um, is relatively old. Um, but the new research that's coming out in smaller studies um, still is consistently showing that the big DI and the ZI are, are both, um, both consistent. And I guess um, Part of the, the problem with educational research is that most of the, the dollars and the interest tends to go towards new things. Um, and so there's a, um, a counterweight kind of effect that, that goes on in, in educational research. Things that are published are, are more seen as uh, of interest to people if it's about something new. So um, the, um, the lack or the perceived lack of, of, of new research isn't actually true, it's, a, it's just a perception. Um, and it's also true that. Um, our brains haven't changed in the last 40, 50 years. So the, the same sorts of reasons that DI works then are the reasons that it works now. Final question? I think there's a whole lot of reasons uh, for that. One is, in my remarks, I, I, I tried to make the case that direct instruction is not a rote program. It, it isn't. It is a very sophisticated instructional design that has lots of elements of repetition and embedding learning in long-term memory and so on. But the, when you take the macro view of how children are introduced to concepts through the program, there's a very sophisticated instructional design at play. Um, but, but when you enter a direct instruction classroom, um, a lot of people used to traditional education um, see great parallels. Yeah? They think it's like learning from the, from the 40s and 50s or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of misconception about direct instruction and conflating it with traditional education. It is much more sophisticated than the old traditional education. And, uh, but, but also, um, it's heavily ideological. Last night, I had the great privilege of, we all had the great privilege in Brisbane of hearing about Broad Beach State School. A bit like Paul's school, but much more advantaged. And, you know, school sitting in the middle of the Gold Coast, in the middle of the park. No real drama. Kids, you know, they're people generally happy other than the principal about how they're going. 
and they adopted direct instruction and explicit direct instruction in the last three years, and they had a three from the top. There were a whole lot of private schools behind them. So, one of the issues here is that Stinford Engelman went to the ghetto. Whereas perhaps he should have gone into the suburbs, to the middle class. Had he added to the advantage, because that's what Broadbeach is doing now, it's adding further advantage to the advantage. And good on them. But the, the difficult business is when you go to the ghetto, when you go to Cohen, when you go to Hutter, when you go to Oracle. And you want those children to have the advantages that the kids at Broadbeach have. And the road is harder, but intensely more ideological and political. The lower you are down in the educational food chain, the more political and controversial it seems to be. And people don't like the fact that lessons are highly structured. And, and, and children have to memorize things and so on and so forth. So the thing, the whole thing is high, highly ideological. And, and I've, got a, I've, got real, I've got a real kind of sense of, if you can call it, deja vu when we went through the Harry experience earlier this year. It, it felt like Engelman project follow-through in the 70s. A great experiment that Jennifer put up on the wall there that showed direct instruction. From 67 to 1977, the evidence said DI is the only program that worked, and do you think education in America adopted DI after 10 years and a billion dollars worth of experiment? No, they didn't. They did not accept the evidence. It was one of the great Crimes of educational history, the way our project follows through worked out. And purely for political and ideological reasons, they didn't accept the outcomes of project follow through and adopted it in disadvantaged schools in America. And I had a great sense of deja vu about all of that from the Hurricane drama project. Highly ideological. Chris Sarah coming in saying, This is the poor man. And uh, they all piled in. The department was covering its backside through the school under the bus. Instead of addressing law and order in the community, they decided the school. The one place in Oregon. I mean, I, I, I cause no offense to Phyllis when I say the one functional place in the community was thrown under the One place of hope was thrown under the bus. So I wish I had the complete answer to the question that was raised about why um, why the I um, invoke uh, such controversy and so on. But I would have thought, finally, that John Hattie is a good guy and a massive. You know, John has John is the leading figure in education across the world, 
I would have thought visible learning would have finally took paid the evidence, settled the evidence. Um, and it's just extraordinary that um, people have not. Thank you, everybody. Um, along. I hope that you've learned more about direct instruction and explicit direct instruction. Thank you very much for coming down, for coming down from Cape York. Um, it was very good to hear directly from you um, how things are affecting you and your community. Thanks so much for being here, everybody.